Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Well, one of the things we're taking a look at here today with the day of Shavuot or of sevens or weeks, also known as Pentecost, it's an invitation to the mountain. As it was then, so it is now. And as we've been going through the Torah, we've been seeing there that they went to the mountain. But then the tabernacle, what was shown, the pattern on the mountain, was something that would travel with them, and that the presence of the Lord that was shown to them on the mountain would also travel with them in the midst of them, in the middle of the camp. We've just gotten into the Midbar numbers. We've seen the orientation of all the, the people around, around this tent, this tent of meeting, this tent of the testimony, where the tablets of the testimony, we just read there in Exodus chapter 20, that these words of the testimony that would become known as the tablets of the testimony, testimony, a witness, a witness for us and also witness against us. And we saw there in Exodus chapter 19 that this was a call for a nation of priests now the question for that generation and also for our generation is are we a nation that can become or i should say that can produce priests because we've seen in our recent haftarah readings from the prophets what can happen with a nation that produces priests that are basically rather than something that directs people to God is turns people away from God, turns people away from God. So this kingdom of priests, is it actually producing priests or is it actually producing pariahs, producing people that will drive the people away from God rather than pulling them toward and we saw there in Acts chapter 2 that this was an a outpouring of the Spirit of God. And what did they experience, did they have with surrounding people because of this outpouring of the Spirit of God? Talking about with favor of the people. So rather than becoming a vehicle where the name the reputation of the lord is brought low we call that blaspheming made common made of nothing special or <laughs> even worse than nothing special by the behavior of the people rather no this is something where the results the fruit that re results from the spirit of god being poured out with power 
is rather people that are an anchor, an anchor for not only Israel, so that when the call goes out, hey, uh, you all made a horrible mistake about the prophecy of the Messiah. And people, it says, were cut to the heart. Remember that idea of the heart is that, um, that which directs your body, directs your flesh, which is why we're going through the book of Romans right now in our weekly study. And there is always the tension there between the spirit and between the flesh. So what is it that we see in the new covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31? Give you a new what? New heart and put the spirit in you. Okay, there we go. So a heart that has the spirit of God in it is that deceitfully wicked as cannot direct the steps in the proper direction. No, rather, it is different. It has been, you could say, you are reborn. That person which was before, that person has died with Messiah in God's eyes. And now we are raised with Messiah in God's eyes. And that's what's hugely important with this, is that we may look to everybody else as the same person who was there before. But day by day, we are transformed into something different. So people can say, hey, God has done something fantastic in your life, changed you. You're not the same person that you were before, that who I knew before. Yes, hallelujah indeed. So with this, we see some of the signposts of Shavuot. These signposts that we have of Shavuot, it's also known as Pentecost, which means 50th. And Pentecost Day, from which it comes from, is 50. And that is connected historically, as we read in some of our readings here earlier today, that's ceremony with the annual feasts of Pesach or Passover and Matzot or unleavened bread and the 50 days in between. And very interestingly that we have those two different metrics there, the seven sevens plus one and 50 together. Um, yes, before we go any further, uh, Christine, go ahead, please. I just wanted to go back to the Jeremiah passage, yes. right? So part of that portion, if I can recall, I don't flip into it right now, is that he'll pour out our his spirit in order to turn us towards his statues and ways. Yes, right? put your laws in your mind. Right. That's right, and on your hearts. Okay. Write them. So it's not just a rebirth, but it's a turning towards so much more, right? Yes, it is. When he talks about being reborn, you know, this is, this is not just a, um, you could say, resetting you. Right. This is a transformation yeah. of you. A transformation. We've been talking about the people who are drawn to ever since the garden. 
drawn to the tree of knowledge of good and bad, but transformed to people that are drawn to the tree of life rather instead, and the one who actually provides real knowledge of what is good and what is bad. Yes, in the ways that truly do lead to death, because the way that goes down to the tree of knowledge of good and bad, that way does lead to death. You're not going to discover and divine something else, some other way of true life that comes through that. Because the interesting thing is, you know, when you think of from the Gospels and one of the the last messages that Yeshua said to his closest ones, is he says, this is eternal life to do what? To know you and the one who you have sent. That is eternal life. Not eternal, you know, floating around on a cloud with a harp or the eternally, you know, eating large bowls of ice cream into all eternity. No, rather, it is in communion. In, in communion. Because what is one of the most terrible punishments that you can give people separation, isolation. One of the terrible pariahs that we're having in society today is what? Separation and isolation. People are being more and more isolated, even though we are supposedly more connected than ever. We're supposedly more connected than ever, yet we're becoming more and more isolated from each other. So that sense of being connected outside of yourself and also being connected to the creator of heaven and earth, that is what has sustained our brothers and sisters in the body Messiah through all kinds of terrible things that they have faced. We read about it in the book of Acts, where the apostles were sitting in the dungeons, yet joyous to be suffering for the name, to be connected to the one who created heaven and earth. One of the things that is a huge part of despair in the world is that what? Life is meaningless. There is no purpose. Some people blink into existence. They blink out of existence. The world blinks into existence. It blinks out of existence. No point, no purpose, no goal, no direction, nothing. But darkness to darkness. So, yes, indeed. And that is one thing that is an incredible prison for so many people here today. And so when we talk about, when you see in Acts chapter 2, where it talks about to save you from this perverse generation, and indeed we have the same thing here today. Uh, The the, uh, German philosophers who got things going off the rails a couple centuries ago, we call that the Weltgeist, or the the basically this uh, world world spirit, the world spirit, but that world spirit was directing people 
to what? Seek knowledge of good and bad. Where? Within themselves. What? Anywhere but God. Just anywhere but that. So, we see here today that the, the message of Sinai, the message of Eliyahu, choose this day whom you are going to serve. If Baal is God, serve him. But if the Lord is God, choose. Don't just float in the middle, because there is no floating in the middle. No floating in the middle whatsoever. So as we move on, some of these other signposts that these God, God's instructions for Shavuot are connected to this harvest. And we see, you know, we live at least here, uh, folk out there in Wyoming are in an agricultural community. We here in Sonoma County are also in an agricultural community. Well, you have the cycles of the vineyards that are all around us and some of the other ancillary crops that are out there. Uh, <laughs> yes, that one too, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, no, I wasn't referring to that one, but that, good point, yes. Yes, uh, speaking of uh, things that would uh, divert the attention and the will to something else. But one of the things that you would see is from the harvest, you have what? We talked about this just a few weeks ago. You have the planting. You can do all that you can to prepare. You can prepare if you have irrigation or fertilizer or this or that or, that, or the cultivation of the ground, etc., etc. But at some point, you're just like, you know, it's like teaching someone to ride a bike. At some point, you have to release your hands, and it's going to go. And that in agriculture is one of those things that it's like at some point, it is just not in my hands anymore. And that indeed is one of the great lessons that we have of the agricultural cycles that are mentioned here in these particular festivals that we celebrate. And the three times a year that the males of Israel were to present themselves before the Lord, connected to harvests. So, we guys, what is it that us guys are going to do as far as the, as far as the harvest of the earth? Are, are we reaping? Yes. <laughs> yes. So do we, are we actually involved with this? And back with that call to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 to be a kingdom of priests. Are we developing families of priests, families from which you can have a next generation that grows up that are going to be drawing people to the Lord and serving people in their connection with the Lord. Now, just as in Israel, even though they were a kingdom of priests, not everybody was a priest, and not everybody of the priests was a high priest. So there was a distinction among them, but out of Israel would come the priests. 
and out of Israel would come the support for the priesthood. Because as we're just going through in the book of Numbers right now about the apportionment of the people and apportionment of the tribes, we're going to see pretty soon that the tribe of Levi from which the priests come, they didn't have a specific allotment of themselves. They had cities that were devoted to themselves, distributed throughout all of the land. But they themselves, per se, of course there were some exceptions that we've already read about, about uh, things returning to one tribe or the other. But their allotment, their inheritance was the Lord's. And in a sense, their inheritance was also all of the tribes and the people where they were scattered around. So the places where they were would also benefit from and be subtracted from by how the priesthood would operate. So things flow upstream to the priesthood, flow downstream from the priesthood into the society around them. Now we see with some of these markers that we've gone through so far, Pesach, Passover, to be freed from bondage. We just read about that in Exodus chapter 20. It's a part of the, the first word, the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then you can say, therefore, have no other gods before me. Why would you want to? The one who freed you, why would you go somewhere else? Why would you go somewhere else? Yes. And that's, that's a very interesting point that what, what Peter said, you know, when Yeshua was, was challenging the, the 12, when he was saying some pretty harsh things for the people to get, and they were starting to say, ah, oh, this is uh, too much, and they started uh, going away. So Yeshua challenged them. He says, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, just like Deborah mentioned, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And thus, when you see that, what is eternal life? To know you, to know the Father and the one whom the Father has sent. Why? Because, like we were talking about earlier, this is not a world that is pointless. It didn't just wink into existence and will wink out of existence. We as people didn't wink into existence and we won't just wink out of existence. We are, as it's mentioned there, back in the book of Genesis, created for a purpose. This world created for a purpose. Israel created for a purpose. The kingdom of priests on purpose, yes, on purpose, for purpose. So, thus, we, as the Apostle Paul would put it, we are not people who have no hope in talking about death, facing death. Because obsession with death is a whole part of, you know, it's come to have the great 50-cent word nihilism, which means nothingness, obsession with nothingness. 
And that obsession with death is a part of that sense of feeling some sort of a strange attraction of staring into the abyss. And we, we, we it goes by different words. You call it, you know, rubbernecking. When you go by a crash, you just like to see disaster, something that is different from the norm. There's many reasons why you don't want to be a part of it. Maybe obs- obsessed with um, the calamity of it all. I like to live there on the brink of disaster. But we, when we are looking at death, death, when we trust in the creator of heaven and earth, the one who gives life, the one who restores life, what is death? Transformation? (laughs) Death is our enemy. It's not something to be embraced, but it is also something, if we truly trust in the one who creates and recreates, not something to be feared. Now, we wrestle with our flesh in this, because what does the flesh want to do? Does the flesh like to die? Does the flesh love to suffer? No, certainly not. So thus you can see some of the struggles that Yeshua was facing there in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. To trust in the one who creates, can recreate, restore. So thus in in the world today, there is hope. There is hope in disaster. There is hope in the dungeon. There is hope in the darkest of nights around. Why? Because we know, we know the creator of it all. And we know the one who the creator sent, the one who restores. Yes, we know the God in the mountain is God in the valley. And we see from Matzot, so Pesach, freedom from bondage. The big 50-cent word justification, being declared not guilty. Matzot, being purged of that mindset from the former life. Purge out malice and wickedness, as the Apostle Paul puts it. But be filled up with the unleavened bread of sincerity, transparency, and truth. And we have that big 50-cent word again, sanctification. To sanctify just means to set it apart. To set it apart. Being set apart from the world. We, um, we pray and we have our... Uh, part of the Shema is related to that passage on the Shabbat commandment. And it is to be a sign, a sign that he is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who sets us apart and makes us holy. Not because, as we see repeated several times throughout the Torah, not because you are the greatest of all peoples, but you are the least. 
Thus, the one who made all things decided that Israel, you would become the greatest. But to do what? To just be, you know, we are number one, we're number one. No. It is to be a light to the nations, to be a kingdom of priests for all the nations. And so that's when we get to Shavuot, we learn what it means to be adopted into the family. The family of the bondage breaker, the one there in the first commandment, the first word. And then we live it out and then offer that invitation into all the world. Also part of this 50-cent word called sanctification. So when we see all these signposts for Shavuot, the message of freedom, freedom from the past, contentment in the present, strength from the future, is for the whole world. It's not just Israel. This is the marching orders that were given to this kingdom of priests and to all those we see grafted in, as the Apostle Paul puts it there in Book of Romans, those who are grafted in to this tree that the Lord planted. This tree that the Lord planted is a tree that is <laughs> kind of to borrow from another parable that Yeshua told about the mustard seed that starts out just unbelievably small. You know, some people show the, the mustard seeds from the Holy Land being so small they can fit into the grooves in your, in your uh, fingerprints. But yet it will grow into a pretty substantial plant that you can have uh, birds and such roosting in. So very interesting picture of where things can start from what we think is dust, something that is so small you can't even see it almost, to something that is quite substantial. That is where you see the history of the people of God through all the world, from Abraham down through his sons, finally to a son that his name gets changed, Yaakov to Israel and his sons go down into a superpower and the one the god of that particular family goes in and breaks the back of the superpower and brings them out brings them out with such mighty force that there as the saying goes the reputation preceded them you see about that when they came up on their first stop in in uh, west of the Yarden River in with Jericho, that Rahab, oh, she heard about the reputation of Israel. Indeed. And their hearts melted for fear, indeed. So as we look at some of these particular aspects of why it's called Shavuot, Pentecost, why, what's with the, the 50 days on it. Now, when you're seeing this particular aspect of it, it's a pilgrimage festival along with the first pilgrimage block, which is Pesach, Matzot, and Bikarim, or Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, and Shavuot, 
and then Sukkot, or tabernacles, with the final harvest. Now on from that, just with those pilgrimage festivals, you see that this festival, a Shavuot, has a number of names throughout the Bible, one of which is Chag HaKatsir Bikarei Ha'asecha, or the Feast of the Harvest of the First Fruits of Your Labor. Wow, that's a long name. But again, it is a remembrance of what? Harvest of the first fruits of your labor. It's kind of very interesting parallel to that with the baptism, the immersion that Yochanan was doing there in the Yarden River. What was that called? It was called the immersion or the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you're seeing there's a, there's a cycle there. So you are being washed for repentance, which leads to forgiveness of sins. So thus you're seeing that this transformation is being reborn is something where you are turning around, you teshuva. And with the turning around, then that becomes your past. You're forgiven. It is sent away. Sent away indeed. So another name for it, which we know well, Chag Shavuot, or the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Sevens, literally means the Feast of Sevens, but also can refer to weeks there because Shavua means week or seven. And it's very interesting because it related to Shavah or to, uh, we, it's the Hebrew term for to make an oath. Thus, you get that picture of seven being an idea of completeness or you can take it to the bank as being a symbol of that. So seven, when you see cycles of seven show up in the course of scripture, that is a picture of something reaching its surety, its completeness. And thus, when you have the time of Sukkot and then Shemini Atzeret or the, the assembly of the eighth day, that is reaching its fullness and then doing what? Flowing over, which is where then you get the word shaman, which is where shamani comes from for eighth. And that shaman means to be fat, to be plenty. And a corollary word from that is shaman, which is oily. So you get this picture of reaching its fullness and then going over the top to being more than enough. And one of the things that you have, another name is Bikare Katsir Chetim, or the Feast of the First Fruits of the Wheat. So one of the names of the harvest as it moves along. And then also where we get Pentecost from, Pentecoste, or 50th, it strictly means 50th, but referring to the 50th day. 
And it's also when you read the Septuagint, that is one of the words that's used in there when it talks about on, on the 50th day in the passage we read earlier. It uses the same Greek word there, uh, Pentecoste. And then, of course, the Yom HaBikarim, or the day of the first fruits, as it came down to be referred to as later. So you got the, the first fruits, the, that sheaf that you start counting from, and then when they reach their fullness, and it's the day of the first fruits of it. So, with all this, we get into our passage here in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. So with this background as to why all these people were coming from all over, I don't know if you caught when we were going through Acts chapter 2, where these people were coming from? Parthia. That's, you know, modern day, let's see, that would be Afghanistan East. So it's way over there. And then coming from Macedonia and coming from Rome even, from Italy, modern day Italy, coming to celebrate this. And you see him in the book of Acts that Paul is saying, you know, hey, I would like to get back home in time for this festival or that festival. So these people are coming in from all over the realm because this is what the Lord had said. Hey, come to Jerusalem, present yourselves. Now, as it ended up later on when you got so far away, uh, Daniel's talked about this before, when you factor in your traveling, in those days it wasn't hopping a flight from Rome and ending up a few hours later in Jerusalem. Uh, no, it was, it was uh, quite, quite the endeavor. And you read about it in the book of Acts when Paul is on a trip there on a prison ship. And not only was the way treacherous, but it took a while to go. It took months, depending on what kind of boat you're on in making the, the trip there. So when you think about the logistics of, you know, Passover, and then 50 days later, you come back, so if you live in Rome and you go there for Passover, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, you might as well stay over until into Shavuot and then head back. But it was a long way to travel. So these people are coming in from all over the land and coming in with what kind of hope? If you were making this journey, you're doing it, but just out of duty we all show up here this is what i'm supposed to do so i show up i get my my uh, celestial ticket punched and then i go go back home again then there's also the ones that are doing it out of hope the hope of israel the hope of the restoration the hope of what the prophets would talk about that there would be one that would continue to sit on David's throne, that there would be a descendant of David, just like it was prophesied to Solomon, that there would be one that would come, that would restore, that would heal, that would bring back not only just the people from Babylon or wherever, but those that had gone out in the first exile of the northern tribes out into Assyria and points beyond 
to the point where you see traces of them far-flung areas, even as far as, as uh, modern-day Great Britain and as far east, you know, into India or beyond, all over the place, drawn out and scattered. But that's the promise of the prophets, that though we read about that in one of our Haftarah passages last week, that wherever God had scattered, he would gather he would gather like hunters set out to find the prey, like fishermen sent out for a big catch. So to the apostles called, Yeshua says, hey, I'm going to make you into fishers of men to be part of this great ingathering. Great ingathering, starting first with those who are close in, but then moving out into all the nations. We see the, the missionary journeys that the apostles made going out on their excursions into the places inside the land. Then with Shavuot, hey, you got the world coming to your doorstep. They're coming from all over the place. And as we were noting, because the journey was long, people tended to stick around if they were making the journey. So that's what we're seeing there is the people heard the message. They were cut to the heart. They were transformed. And they started wanting to learn more, to grow in this, to learn, oh, who is this master? Who is the one who came? Who is the light of Israel? Who is the light of all the nations? so that they could then become the witnesses into all the earth. And to, to learn from those who had witnessed the death, witnessed the resurrection, witnessed the resurrected Messiah, and carry that into all the earth. That no, this is not... Because, I mean, th think about this. It's one thing to be, you know, if you've made a trip to the Holy Land, I... Uh, Definitely look forward to the time of being able to go. When you go to the land, what are you steeped around? History. The places that you read about in Scripture. This place, that place. This road, that road, this city, that city. You're surrounded by all of it. It's kind of like growing up in a family that believes in a certain way growing up around a neighborhood that is, believes a certain way. But then what happens when you move away? Move away from your family, you move away from your particular community or your neighborhood, and you're like all by yourself. It can fade. So with these communities that were set up in various places, these synagogues that were set up throughout the Roman Empire, these were enclaves, you know, insular, you could say, embassies of Israel throughout all of the world, all of the world at the time. Yet, what happens when you walk out the door? It's kind of like being in an embassy, being in the U.S. embassy, and then you leave the embassy. 
like, ooh, boy, you quickly realize, you know, I'm not in Kansas anymore or Nebraska anymore. You're in a completely different area. Yeah. It's like when, when, uh, or when, when we were living in Korea, going, having to go to the embassy there, you know, it's like it's just very strange that suddenly you walk into a building and you can read everything easily. People are speaking your language easily. You walk back out the door again. It's like hard to read everything. It's hard to understand everybody. The culture is different. And thus you can see what the people are living in all the places of the Roman Empire at the time. That's thus when you walk out the door, you're not surrounded by that anymore. So what kind of people do you become? Do you become the Shabbat Israelite? Where, yeah, you live like an Israelite when you're on Shabbat and in the community. But when you leave and you go out into the area around, who then are you? Would anyone know that you're any different from anyone else? So thus, what was the true then is just as true now. So these people were coming in, whether they were coming to get their ticket punched or whether they just had a true hope of Israel, to then hear that the hope of Israel has come. And it was what the prophets talked about and even more, and even more than that, that this would be something that would just enliven enliven your little grasp on the kingdom of God wherever you were out into the world. So that when you go back, you're not alone anymore. That the one who was on the mountain, who was in the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was traveling along in the midst of the people, is still in the midst of the people. No matter if you're in Rome or if you're in Parthia, or if you're in Egypt, or Macedonia, wherever you are, thus you have the power of heaven is there with you, coming with incredible power. And that being demonstrated with a representation of the tongues, the languages, the languages of God, God being the universal translator. Because that's one of the, you could say, calling cards of heaven is language. Language is that of a mind. There is no way language comes from anywhere else but a mind. People in the world today will try to, try to deny that up one side and down the other. You can have your favorite software translation program but somebody wrote that some body wrote that some mind wrote that because language is mind to mind thought to thought it is a great example and a fingerprint of the creator of heaven and earth so the one who created all things says, okay, 
I'm now going to give you power to then take this message into other places to open up your ability to communicate. So that being a great message that we have, that not only are we given the commission to be a priesthood for all nations, but also the power. So one of the things we've, we've seen in our midst, the great examples of the power of the Spirit of God changing people, transforming people, turning people around. You wouldn't think there would be anything that would ever happen and suddenly turned around. And thus, the one that is able to change hearts, create the world to create us, create languages, is thus able to fully bring things to a conclusion. So that this, what we see in Shavuot or Pentecost, is part of a continuum. Bondage breaking to a reunion from Passover to Sukkot. Breaking the bondage, freeing you out of the prison. And then finally at the end in Sukkot, reunited, living among us, and then flowing over beyond that fullness, that completeness, into a time of living together. So that vision that we see there in Revelation, that is what the promise of that the dwelling place of God is amongst mankind. So that is where we are going to leave things off here today. Hopefully, then when you think about the time of Shavuot or Pentecost, why is it relevant? It is part of a continuum. It is a part of a continuum that begins with Genesis, goes all the way through Revelation. And this is a part of what God is doing. Not plan A God, plan B God, but this is what the Lord has been doing. And when you see a picture of the mixed multitude that came out with Israel, that's a picture of what would come of the grafting in of the nations. The grafting in. Because think about it. Why was there a mixed multitude that came out with Israel? Why? A shadow of things to come. Perhaps, maybe, it's something that we see recorded many times. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Yes, Ruth said that. And that is indeed what you see is why the book of Ruth is a customary book that's read around this time period. Because you see those two great... Um, Seemingly non sequiturs, people have noticed this for hundreds of years, that you've got these two strange non sequiturs that show up in the book of Barashit, the book of Genesis. What? Lot and his daughters, and Yehuda and Tamar. And you're like, what is up with that? What is up with that? We are 
there are two sides of a similar thing. We we have the the long <laughs> the you could say the uh, the great theological term for they call it the Leverite marriage, but basically it's like you are going to uphold the house of your brother by continuing his line. So the daughters thought, well, we are going to uphold the the house of our father, and thus results in what you would call Moab or from father. Yes, from father. And who descended from Moab? Ruth. Yes. A, that nation that was a cursed form of um, going away from the promise, because what happened when Israel was coming out of Egypt and was going to try to have passage through? What happened? Moab said, no. This is like, you know, remember... Lot? Hey, you'd think family? No. No, not going to let through. But one who was even from Moab, it was said, remember what the curse was upon Moab? Hey, you're going to be um, persona non grata, a people that is not of any invitation to the family. For generations. But she said, no, your people will be my people. But she was going to do what? Uphold her husband's. So, what nation was her husband from? Israel? Yehuda? Okay. So, she, from Moab, the outcast, was going to uphold the house of her husband from Yehuda. And then you have with Yehuda and Tamar, what was the whole thing of why that, why she resulted in doing that? Because, <laughs> yeah, well, basically blaming on daddy. Daddy was not going to let it move through to actually uphold her family. So, yes. So thus, you would say he gave over his, his indicators of his status over for it. And thus, what did she say? Hey, do you recognize these? Similar to what Yehuda and the other brothers said when they brought the bloody robe to their father. Do you recognize this? So, thus we get down to Ruth. And she was going to go uphold her side of the family, but Boaz says, no. I'm not going to go through some surreptitious route here this time. They're going to See if your family will step up here. And when the family of the husband wasn't going to step up here, wasn't going to step up. I mean, he just didn't step up. So 
Well, yeah, could kind of kind of like the guy who kind of kind of like the guy who said, uh, "Yeah, I gotta uh, try out my cattle here first. I'm not gonna go follow you. Uh, I, I just got married. Uh, yeah. yeah, I gotta go bury my my relatives. Yeah. So excuses, excuses. Now the point is, is that who was going to step up? So Boaz stepped up. So thus you see that what started out as a calamity there ended up with Moab ends up being turned around into a line of the great deliverer. Yeah, it's a re- reason why you read the book of Ruth. It is basically, it's about, hey, the turnaround of a people and how the nation of priests should behave, that you would attract someone in to say, even if we are accursed, to borrow something from the Gospels, hey, even the dogs get stuff that falls off the master's table. Yes, what a humble thing to say. And thus you're seeing this from this daughter of Moab, to say, hey, I see whose people I want to be a part of. I don't want to be a part of the legacy that of Moab. I want to be part of the legacy of Israel. And we all are being grafted in and adopted into this family. So thus, we're facing again a world that, as it has in times past, is facing darkness, facing a looming darkness. Do you follow after and wallow in it? Or is it that you show people, hey, Join the family of the light. Join the family of the light sender. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And sent the... <laughs> yes, you can't be a beacon if your light don't shine. That's right. Indeed. Any last thoughts as we close out here today? Uh, yes, Carrie, go, go ahead, please. Um, I just, I've seen some conversation recently around, and it's something that's occurred to me in previous years, but I just never really looked into it that much. But I think that it's fun to look at the tongues of fire with the different languages um, as a complete reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Mm, also, yes. Because Hashem used language to divide the people at the Tower of Babel, but then he used it to unite them in his spirit in Acts. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, yes, uh, Damon and then uh, Christine, go ahead, please. Shavuot is the beginning of the marriage covenant with God. We are the bridegroom, and he is the, we're the bridegroom, and I mean, we're the bride, and he is the bridegroom, and you've got, first you have, um, Passover, which Yeshua takes away our sins, then we're cleansed, and 50 days later, we're the first fruits, and we begin to have that covenant, which is a Torah, and you love me if you obey my Torah and my commandments. And then it goes all the way through to the final marriage, 
in Sukkot. So all of God's plan, this is the beginning of that marriage covenant. Yes. It almost sounds like a the course of the entire year very similar to something Yeshua said. When he was asking, he brought it up earlier, who do you say I am? Well, with the creator of heaven and earth, we don't have to go to some guru to get that answer. No, we have the tablets of the testimony, a, the character of the creator of heaven and earth. Not some far-off idea that changes with every person who comes up with it. No, rather, we know we get to know who it is who has created us, why he created everything, and where he's planning to take us. Yes, Christine. I was just thinking of Shavuot again. Um, he says, I'm the one that brought you out of mm, bondage. Yes. And there is such a love affair that they're willing to say, whatever, yes, if it's from you, we'll take it. There's rabbinical thinking that it was offered to lots of nations, that it went out to lots of nations, but it was only those that had been led out to say, we know what we're, we've seen it. Yes, we will do and we will hear without even knowing all the do was, you know, it, it's from you. Yes, kind of that first love, like, no, you hang up first. <laughs> no, you hang up first. You know, it's kind of like that, that first crazy love. And yes, we know what happens with 40 days up there and then how quickly we return back to what we know. But there was this overwhelming, and I guess that's what I'm reminded this year at Shavuot for me, was yes. Whatever you said, wherever you told me to go, I said I would, and I still have. But it was only when I was called out of Sunday, you know, uh, rock star church concept, I had to have that spirit poured over so that I would hunger for the testimonies, you know, and so that I would it could not have been something that I had done intellectually. It was beyond that. It had to be a work of the Holy Spirit and that it was my first love and that I remembered the bondage that I was in. And it's like, if it's from you, I'm all ears. Yeah. But you, know, one, you, you do bring up a very interesting point about um, their initial reaction. Um, they, I guess you could say, what they they got the full picture of that initial reaction when they said everything you say we will do when they were confronted with this is what we have to leave behind this is not the world and the creator of heaven and earth this is the creator of heaven and earth over instead of the world and instead of where we want to go because after you see the golden calf incident, what was kind of one visible sign that they're of, um, kind of similar to a situation that you see in the book of, <laughs> the book of Jonah? 
with Nineveh repenting. They were putting a sackcloth as a sign of it. But after the golden calf incident, what? Just a small little sign. Remember the thing about the ornaments? Yes, as a sign of basically saying, okay, yeah, our old way of life has to change, which is one of the things where you have the sign of circumcision. It is referred to as what? Rolling back the reproach of Egypt. That's what it's referring to. That is basically, you have to change what was Egypt, your house of bondage. That has got to be left behind, which is, which is why you could say that uh, the um, circumcision and what we see as the, the great mikvah washing are hugely connected together as being a sign of the rebirth together. It is becoming a part of a different country, joining a different family. And that is something that for parents, they set their child on that path. But the eighth day, hey, this is the path where the child is going to go down. If this is something that comes as an adult, it's like, all right, you need to realize that your change has to come. Then any sort of sign of where you are going, then that comes after it. Remember about Yochanan's washing? It is the washing for repentance for forgiveness of sins. So thus you say the turnaround part. Hey, I've got to turn around to go a different way. And one of the things that you see with the New Covenant prophecy and you see it lived out through the Messiah and his apostles is that this new change, this new direction yeah, it's the makeover, new birth it's talked about. That who you were before, that, that just can't continue on. I mean, people who reach rock bottom, they realize it, uh, no, that has got to end. Can't just kind of take it, kind of bring in little parts of it along. You, those things that led down that road have got to end. And for all of us here on this planet, the world is steeped in the tree of the knowledge of good and bad and going down that road. And we know that once our first parents started down that road, it was, and dying you would die. It's the start of the descent. Starts on that particular path. And so the creator says, oh, we're going to start things back over and you're going to be heading down the tree of life route. Yes, Deborah. I was thinking today, and I have often, and I thought to myself, when I've had a problem that I've had in my life, and God has brought it to my attention, I made a decision. I said, either I can do something about this, 
or wait for God to do it or try to do it on my, you know, do it on my own before he gets to me. And I think, you know, oh my goodness, we're a habit that I had that I stopped, you know, and I was thinking about that with my son is like, either I can try to fight it and do something now or, and, you know, cause of course I didn't want God to act. I needed to do it, you know? So I think to myself, you know, when you're, you know, when your parents are upset, you say, I think I better behave before something worse happens, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, that's, you know, I was thinking that for my son is like his life is in such turmoil and his, he's so depressed and so empty because, you know, he hasn't turned to God and Micah is, is just beginning and he's young and he's watching his father because he's torn between two households. And he called me here just a little bit ago saying, you know, I said, your dad is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. And, you know, I'm trying to teach him that do something now, you know, correct yourself before he, God corrects you and, or you've made a mess. Yeah. Yeah, and those, those things where you realize that you have to make the turn, you know, the, the turn is not going to be easy. But the element is, is that not only can we move down the road to a different and a new life, but also we can be a light for others as well. But, you know, you got the, the counsel of the Apostle Paul there in Galatians 6.1. It's like, hey, it's very noble to do that, but be careful because if you're not watching yourself, you could be brought down into the same thing that snared you before. Yes. Uh, yes, Rose, go ahead, please. I think the one uh, wonderful thing, the, the wonderful thing about uh, being at the rock bottom, the only way is up. <laughs> Yes, and then, the only I, and then my second thought is, there is a light at the end of the tunnel because Christ paid the bill. Yeah, yeah, and and see that is that is the thing that can be very helpful to let people know that when you hit rock bottom, that there is actual up. Because one of the the challenges that we have here today is that when people hit rock bottom. They think there is nothing more than just a free fall down further and further and further and further. But to show, no, okay, so you've fallen down. There is the way up. And there is the one, the one who set all things in motion, once the person who fell so far down, that that person who fell down becomes a different person and the previous person is their deeds are forgotten purposely forgotten purposely sent away so that's one of the great messages that we have here in this world today is that yes we see that there is a standard there is a standard for how the world should go we face up to that standard and we say, well, all right. And really there at the mountain was very similar to what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. Everything you say, we will do. Because just like Paul says, we see in the law that it is good, it's holy. But then I look into myself and I see hey, the good that I want to do, 
I don't do it. And that which I don't want to do, oh boy, do I want to do that. So we face up against our golden calf. So the question is, well, what do we do when we face up to our golden calf? You know, do we just, you know, upshift and just go pedal to the metal right down in the highway to destruction? Or is it that we say, ooh, nope, time to turn around, start going the other way? Yes, uh, Sam. Uh, I, I believe the way to, you know, to maintain the relationship is to guard whatever the Lord has given us in Revelation, like what we are learning here. Uh, I, I read about something on uh, Exodus that baffled me. And it's in Exodus 32. And then go to Exodus 34. In Exodus 32, I, yeah, verse 15, he said, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written one side and the other. The tablets were God's work. And the reading was God reading engraved on the tablet. That was the first tablet. Moses didn't do anything. God did it all. But you, you, you fast forward <laughs> yes. to the second tablet. Chapter 34 now. Hear what the, the, you know, the scripture says. And it seems that sometimes that's how we, we, we lose connection with God. Moses, God did all this. Thing. He gave us all these holidays, the right rulings from him that are beneficial to us. But we will not go that. We will rather uh, exalt the teaching of maybe some pope or whatever. So Moses, God, he heard the word. God did everything. Go give it to the people. When he got in there, what I, what I gleaned from this when I was reading it this morning was when the Lord gives you a revelation, be ready for the golden calf because the enemy is always at the door to obstruct whatever the Lord is revealing to you. So Moses was given this, the original one. God did it all. So he, he didn't guard it in anger because he saw what was going on. He, he dropped it and it was shattered. The second one now has to do with Moses. You cut the stone and you bring up, and there is pardon in there that I, I would like, you know, Jeff to clarify because I don't know whether there is a kind of a mistake or error or it is what it is. Um, in verse 27, he said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words. The first one was God wrote on it. The tablet was God carving it out. He did everything. He just handed a finished work. Take it to the people. Then he shouted. The second time now, the Lord said, you carve the stone, you bring it. But in fast 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write down this word for in accordance with this word, I have made covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink and he wrote on the tablet the word of the covenant. And that's where I got, I got personal, like, okay, who are they referring to? 
Is it God who wrote it because it's a small, you know, he, the lowercase e, not uppercase e? Because in the scripture, whenever they are referring to God or Yahweh, it's uppercase e, but in this case, it's lowercase e. So that means what we have today, because remember what the people say, God's voice is too loud. We're going to die. You speak to us. And I think that's why God decided the first one is not necessary because they, they are not willing to accept it anyway. So as we sit in here, listen to the message every week, because you cannot be feeding on the Holy Spirit and then go to Sunday and still be feeding on it. There's going to be a confusion. And I believe that's where many people are confused today. That, okay, they want this Shabbat. They want all this. But at the same time, they didn't want to let go of the, of the past. When you cut off the foreskin, you don't want to try to put it back. Yeah. It is gone. So you, you, you have to set your mind straight, the path we want to work, so that God can work with us. The double-minded receive nothing from God. So and that's so when I read this, so I'm kind of okay. I think this is what the people want, and God is letting us have in it. Like, okay, we don't want the voice of God, we want the voice of Moses. Amen. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so it's it's one of those things that you, you bring up a very interesting point because um there is a sort of a corollary there with the instruction for the kings of Israel. That they would do what? That they would write it out. And, you know, uh, Ellie has talked in times past about her discipline of actually handwriting out the, the Torah. Because in those cases, what? When you're writing the things out, you tend to be thinking about it. And one of the part of the instructions, as we see in Deuteronomy for the kings, when they're writing those things out, is for what along with the writing the things out? Yes, about for the explanation of the things that they are writing out. And whose job was it to explain the Torah? The king was to write it out, to live it out. The priests were to teach it in there. So thus is the kingdom of priests. If you have a completely ignorant nation, have no idea what the words of God are, what do you think the priesthood is going to be like? Yeah. yeah the yeah, if the king knows it, they would be able to correct the priests. Well, yes, you would, you would hope, but <laughs> the, way, the way the things usually go, unless there is a great reformer, is that, uh, as they say, um, stuff floats up, and um, thus you end up getting leadership that reflects what? The hearts of the people, thus the minds which are controlling things, and if you have... If you have uh, weak hearts that are just letting their flesh, their desires run wild, then what do you think the leadership is going to be like? Yeah, just like it is today. When you, when you re release the reins that are 
from heaven into the world and really upon people in the world. Thus, what do you expect to happen? <laughs> it feels good to, yes, yes, Christine. Well, I try to, um, I don't know, I tell my granddaughters all the time that grandma's studying law, you know. I just, I'm, I'm back in law school, you know, that's how I see um, our study of Torah is so that we're aware and, you know, um, we can not only look at our own lives and diagnose sin and, you know, begin to dissect it and work on Lashon Hara, all of those things, is that I can, you know, uh, be a priest to my, my children and my grandchildren and my community. Yeah. yeah, we're in the study of law. We're in law school. Yes. Well, <laughs> as, as uh, one of the founders of this particular country here said, and paraphrasing it, you know, that our law is written for, talking about constitution, written for a moral and upright people. It's wholly unfit for any other. Because what happens when you have no sort of internal restraints or lowered internal restraints? The external restraints have to multiply to try to restrain. And what ends up happening? You see it throughout history that when things unravel where people are not restrained inside anymore, Dictatorships, they will try to control from the outside. Sometimes they're very successful. We see some dictatorships in the world today that are very successful in that. But how successful are they long-term? Don't have a great long-term track record on that. So that's definitely a warning and also a source of hope for the world is that you know we can look at these instructions these instructions of the lord as being something to restrain us but we see rather that the apostles and the psalmists call these the law of liberty that we can walk at liberty because of the boundaries because of these boundaries in there because we know where we can go. And we know also, because of respect that we have for other people, where their boundaries are. So we don't invade, or worse yet, pull up and move other people's boundaries to expand our territory into them. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel